coming to you from the morning. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the 99%. I'm here with Marilyn. Hey, guys. What's up? And Elliot. Hey, everybody. And I am Jesse. And we have talked to you about training. We've talked to you about nutrition. We've talked to you about the mental aspects. We're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the fifth pillar, recovery and recovery tools. Um, and we're going to talk about how we use them, what we like, what we like our athletes to use, what we've had positive or negative experiences with ourselves. And we're going to talk about off days and kind of active recovery training and what that means to us and what we want that to mean to our athletes. So to kick things off, I want to start with like the, the furthest away from training being like taking a total rest day, a total recovery day. And so I guess just, just to start, do you guys use total recovery days with your athletes and when might that be necessary? Marilyn, do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, I, I definitely, it depends. It depends on the time of year and the, and the training load on people. Um, and definitely depends on the athlete. I certainly, you know, there's a big difference between active recovery and total off days. A lot of, a lot of athletes find complete off days. They feel worse from them. Um, and they feel a lot better in terms of recovery with, you know, doing a little something, on an active recovery day. I do have plenty of athletes that for mentally and physically where a total off day is, is necessary. And I think, you know, if you've got an athlete with, you know, really, really needing a good recovery block, you might even do something where you do two complete off days and an active recovery day, and then back into the training. So there's a different way to, you know, program that and, and decide on what suits what athletes some people mentally, it's just too tough to just say like, you're going to do nothing today. That's just too hard of them. Maybe physically they need it, but mentally not. And other athletes could be the flip-flop. You know, you actually would like them to move around a little and get a little blood flow going, but mentally they just really need that break. So I think checking in with your athletes, what over time works best for them to, to really recover is the best thing. Yeah, I think it definitely can be athlete dependent, right? I've got, I've got one athlete who takes a recovery day and then his next day he is on point. And, and he's a little bit younger, so maybe he can kind of bounce back from that. Whereas other athletes like myself and a lot of athletes need an easy session or something if they take a total off day in order to kind of get moving again. So it's definitely kind of dependent on, on the athlete, maybe where they are in their career or just how they respond as a human. Yeah, yeah totally. Uh, Age too, probably. Yeah. For, for me, I find a lot of it is more um, lifestyle and perspective, how, how they view training. And I've had not a majority, but a, a significant minority of my athletes just always have one day off a week. You know, it's just like a standby. Um, you know, some people, it's sometimes it's like a religious thing. Sometimes it's just like this is family time. A few people have work schedules that are just crazy hectic. Um, and they, and they need a day to do life outside of training and work. And so it's just, boom, every week there's going to be a day off, but the majority of my athletes, and I would say how I kind of think about in training in general is we only give you an off day really when you truly need it. 
and other than that we're just going to keep on grinding um and and then it's kind of up to to me and the athlete together to kind of discuss when will we have an off day but there's not going to be a set schedule on when they happen so so that kind of rolls into the next bit of that is like usually athletes might get more of an active recovery day is that is that what you would say if they don't get a total off day Correct. Yeah, exactly. There's like, and, and maybe not just one, maybe there's two or maybe there's three, depending on their, their training load, et cetera, and, and what their body can handle. But there's frequently going to be days where it's, it's just very light training. And so there's, there's time to recover from harder sessions, but there's not that complete day off, you know, and there, and, and there's not a break from the mental aspect of it either. But if somebody really needs that break, frequently I'm they're probably in that camp of they get one one day off a week anyways or every other week whatever it might be and I, I would say the other people that I kind of shift into that needing a whole day off instead of just giving active recovery are athletes that struggle with the ability to actually make a training session active recovery um Marilyn do you want to talk a little bit about maybe what actually makes a session active recovery versus anything else? Cause I feel like that's a pretty big gap that, and some athletes are, you know, ha- struggle with that, making a session actually active recovery. Yeah, I totally agree with you. You know, most, <clears throat> if it's, if you've got an athlete that tends to go a little bit too hard all the time, they're going to be someone, whether they, you know, like that complete day off or not, it's, it's, you're probably going to have to program that in for them because they're just always going a little bit too hard for it to actually be active recovery. I also think what you do as active recovery is really important. So if you're, you know, someone might say I'm going for a recover, an active recovery jog. Now, if you're logging hundred mile weeks or 80 mile weeks and you weigh under 150 pounds, you probably can do an active recovery job jog. Um, if you're a little bit bigger athlete and your run mileage is really low, I, I personally don't believe that there is such thing as an active recovery jog. Might be a frequency jog, might be something like that, but you're not actually getting recovery from that jog. In that case, I would recommend a swim, um, maybe a light spin on the bike. I will tell you that I was one of those athletes that if someone said to me, you're going to go for an active recovery spin on the bike, I never felt recovered from it. I just felt more tired from it. So I, I most of the time think that being in water is the best way to, to actually have active recovery. Yoga can be a great uh, alternative for active recovery. So picking what you use as active recovery for the type of athlete is, is really important. In other words, it just ends up being another session that is adding to the stress. You know, if you tell someone in Tucson in the middle of summer to go for a easy recovery two hour ride and they're going to cook out there for in a hundred degrees for two hours, it's probably not recovery, right? They're better off to maybe go indoors to a yoga session or something like that. So I think, again, it has to be specific to the athlete and, and what they're, you know, what's going to actually help them recover and not just add more stress. I, I would turn your opinion on running up even more. I like you, you said 150 pounds or a lot. I mean, or less, and you could have a recovery jog. I mean, I used to run hundred mile weeks and I weighed, I weighed like 135, 140 at the time. And there was no such thing as a recovery run, even though I was super fit and I could run 830 pace. And that was extremely easy. It still wasn't really recovery. It was just a different training load. And there are people I've coached who like kind of feel like there are recovery runs, but I think running is way more 
damaging than people realize. Um, and not, not, in a, not in a bad way, but you're just, it's, it's not gonna, you're not gonna often feel fresh from running no matter yeah. how easy it is. And I think and I, that's important to note. I, I completely agree. The other, the other funny thing that I've um, come across with athletes and, and maybe it's worth mentioning is an athlete that has come to me and said, I'm going to just go do some recovery in the gym. And they think from a, <laughs> right? no, and honestly, that's, I I've had someone say that to me and not just one athlete, but a couple of times where they're like, Oh, as a triathlete, they're thinking, well, I'm not going to swim, bike or run today. I'm just going to go to the gym and call it recovery. And the gym is absolutely not a place for recovery unless you're just going there to stretch uh, and foam roll. That's totally fine. But if you're going there and you're doing any kind of um, actual work with weights, this is absolutely not a recovery session. So knowing specifically what to do for active recovery is, is really important. Yeah. I wanted to jump in there and talk about the, the, I, I agree with you guys on the running and, and talk about the, the swimming and the biking. I also have had what I would call adult onset swimmers where unless they have a lot of toys, there's really no such thing as a recovery swim. Like they get in the pool and they're, they're working hard to get up and down. And so unless you can, you can get them to, you know, maybe that's a good day to, to use the pole buoy or use fins or whatever it is to, to make sure they're actually swimming easy. But, you know, for, for some people that are like, for lack of a better word, you know, adult onset swimmers, it, it, it can be hard for them to go easy and get up and down in the pool. Yeah. So if you're actively trying not to drown for any period of time, <laughs> it's probably not recovery. And that's, well, I mean, like I, I was an adult onset swimmer, you know, like it's, it's just how it is. Drown. <laughs> that's that's, a, that's mean, kind that's, of a rough category to put them in, but, but yes, I, I mean, <laughs> exactly what it is. It's really hard to swim. It's really hard to learn how to swim and you're actively trying not to drown. Like that's the hardest part about swimming is getting comfortable in the water. So what you're saying is someone has to be able to like, just not even think about drowning and just be able to swim. And, and I think a lot of people don't realize that like, oh, you act, it, it depends on the person. Some people are not that fast, but are very comfortable in the water and other people are kind of fast, but not that comfortable. Um, and I, and I that's would also the maybe... distinction you're trying to make. I would maybe correlate it to like body position. If they can like, yeah. if they can float on their, on their, on their stomach or whatever, and, and not again, may, maybe feel like drowning is, is, is okay for that. But if they can float and then start to move forward with like very low effort, right. That's um, have that, having that body position so that they can do that without feeling like they're working hard. And then, but then on, on the riding thing too, I think it's having the ability to go slow, right? Like I did, a recovery ride with, um, with Ben on Monday and we averaged like 15 point something for miles per hour. And a lot of people aren't comfortable with riding that slow, but I mean, my, if you want to ride 14, 15 on the river path, that's like my jam. I can, I can cruise easy. Um, you know, you, you need to have a better chamois for that. I think it's important because <laughs> you have a little more pressure on the saddle, but, um, but yeah, being able to actually go for a recovery ride and like cruise is, is a skill that, uh, I mean, it took me a while to learn. And I think it's, it can be hard to teach that to athletes and, and to get athletes kind of on board with, with riding. Um, yeah. Less experienced easy. athletes and, and low volume athletes tend to hammer um, their recovery stuff. And so, you know, if someone's training a lot, they're going to go real easy on their recovery stuff just because they, ha they need to. 
and and less ex and the more experienced an athlete is, they get confidence in that. They don't feel the need to to hammer those sessions. One thing I just wanted to add too is that when you're talking about recovery, I think we need to address: Are we, you know, is it is it uh, immune system? Is it muscle soreness? Is it nervous system? You know, what is it that as a coach you're watching and saying this person needs a little bit little bit of recovery right now? And so if it you know what you choose for recovery could on these active recovery or full recovery days. And, and as we get into, you know, the different things that we can do, what specifically needs the most recovery it could be a combination, all of them, you know, but, but it could be that someone has no muscle soreness at all and they feel great as an athlete. And they're like, Hey, I don't even need anything, but you're noticing, you know, they're really slowing down. Things aren't firing that great. Their nervous system, it looks, seems a little bit shot, or perhaps you're even just a, you know, you see this after races a lot. Someone's like, I feel fit. I feel great. I don't need any recovery. And you're like, actually your immune system is kind of hammered from this race, especially, especially if you have like a bike racer, they're like, Oh, I don't really have that much muscle soreness. I actually feel really good. I'm fit, but they're experiencing things like being overly emotional. Um, they're not sleeping that well. Um, you know, so maybe their nervous system is a little bit shot and also their immune system is a little bit compromised. And you're like, I know you feel great. And I know you have no muscle soreness, but we need to really recover for, you know, five days from, from this. So I think it's important to address what specifically we, the athlete needs recovery from as you choose, you know, the different things available to you. Yes. Yeah, I mean, excellent point. I think, I think in general, when we think about training load, I, I often kind of just think in my head about just thinking about the muscular system really needing that active recovery. But there is a lot of a lot of facets to that, especially when you get into racing or, or bigger efforts like that, where you know you might need to recover on multiple levels. And I, I think it's important to make the distinction: easy workouts are not recovery workouts. There's like there's the off day. I would say a recovery workout is more in line with an off day. And, and the recovery days and off days are not all that common. And they often happen after very large training loads, whether it's a bike race, whether it's an actual race or a hard run, et cetera. Um, and so these are your run of the mill, just go easy runs. Like there's making sure you go easy enough on an easy ride but the, the act of recovery, what Jesse was talking about, where he's just, you know, riding at hundred Watts for somebody whose FTP is like 300, um, that's active recovery. But if he's just going out, yeah, okay. I boosted your FTP up a little bit, but, um, got to make him feel good anyways. Um, <laughs> it's, but an easy workout, maybe whatever you I'm making up watt numbers, but let's say your easy workout is at like 150 to 190 Watts. And then an active recovery is just like even lower than that. We're essentially just moving some blood and having fun being outside. And that's where a hike comes in over a run, right? Even if you're going up and down a little bit, it's you, you're not getting that landing force from being off the ground. So. Awesome. So I guess above and beyond active recovery or a recovery session, what could people do besides that to aid in recovery. And this is where we get into like massage tools, at-home devices, and then from there, like going to see someone for some sort of therapy in which people can go in order to aid their recovery. So let's start with like what people can do at home and what, I mean, they're right now the, the market has got a few, a few different things people can choose from as far as massage devices. So do you guys have any like go-tos or or things that you always recommend things 
you think people should stay away from or are, uh, yeah, where are you at in the, in the list of tools? Or should we just start with like, say the classic foam roller? Like, yeah, what do you I was going to say the if you do the combo of a foam roller and a lacrosse ball, and then you have some basic stretching tools like a yoga strap and a yoga block and, and a few pillows, here's, for, from my perspective, like that's more or less everything you really need, everything else on top of that. Like massage guns are sweet, but they're pretty expensive. I guess you can get the power drill and, and make make your own. Um, right. But like, there's all the different versions of the foam roller. Like right now, uh, my girlfriend has like the vibrating foam roller and like, that's dope, but a regular foam roller, just a piece of PVC or in college, we use Nalgene water bottles, you know, like you already had your water bottle. Boom. You don't even have to get a foam roller. All of that stuff works for breaking up fascia and getting blood flow to areas that doesn't get a lot of blood flow. Which is, which is the whole point of massage. We probably should have said that. This is all the poor man's massage. How do you do this at home? How do you do it regularly? So. Yeah, I think, I think you know, obviously I, I mostly recommend to my athletes they put in like a little mobility stretching routine. And we, for my more advanced athletes, will use things like bands for distractions. You know, if people have, um, you know, if we have the experience for that kind of thing. Um, but just a good stretching routine that is specific for that athlete's, um, you know, problem areas, that kind of thing. Um, foam rollers obviously is the, the, the most go-to. I will say foam rollers don't work for everyone. I have a couple of athletes like this and myself personally, where, you know, it's just like putting a brick against a brick and it's hurt so much that there is like zero release. And no matter how hard you try and how often it just isn't going to be something that works. So, um, you know, self-massage, um, and even, you know, just the, I have found that um, the massage, if you can get the vibrating one for people who struggle with that, with the foam roller, where they're like, no way, it's just too painful. I don't get anything out of it. That actually does make a difference. Um, for some reason, you're able to lean into it a little bit better and it's not as painful, um, but you get, and you get the same result. So, so that's something to, to keep in mind if you're like someone that says, oh man, no matter how many times someone recommends a foam roller, it's just, it's not recovery. It just hurts too much. Or I, I don't actually get anything out of it. I am one of those people and I've gone to the other one and that, that works really well. Yeah. I think for people in those situations, there's like a variety of maybe stepping stones to get to being able to use a foam roller and maybe they never get to, but like, I don't know if you guys ever use the stick, which is kind of like bendy with handles on both sides. It's like, yeah. that can be a good, like, like kind of softer version, but it is more active, right? I think the closer we can get to passive is always better, which is why a foam roller is good. Cause you just kind of like lie there and move a little bit. Whereas the stick, you kind of have to apply some force, but then there are foam rollers that are actually like softer foam. And, and those can be a nice, a nice little way to, to, um, to get used to foam rolling as opposed to just the ones that are like solid. Like, I mean, Elliot analogy bottle, that would, whew, yeah, that's oh, hardcore. No way. I can use that. Um, I mean, yeah. it's yeah, but that's also just like, I didn't, we didn't have any money in college. So it was like, sure, that's sure. what we had. Like, so I think that's the thing to remember, like a golf ball is great for a lot of people's feet, right? You can often just find a golf ball. The, a tennis ball is a softer version of that. The lacrosse balls in the middle. Um, and, and there's all sorts of levels of hardness and that it's really dependent on the person. All of these things though, the whole point is you're going to put pressure on an area and you're, you're going to get blood flow into that area. And 
a professional masseuse, massage therapist, sorry. Um, yeah, it's just <laughs> good, good look, Jesse. Um, yeah, so a massage therapist, if you're working with like a, a licensed massage therapist, they're, they know what they're doing and they're going to be able to, you know, break up scar tissue and, and put pressure on specific areas and really help get more blood flow and, and, and lymphatic flow to certain areas, um, especially like trigger points, et cetera. To all the massage therapists out there, I'm sorry if I'm butchering the exact specific terms, um, but that's what you're trying to do. And these are all just ways you can do that on your own. And the foam roller, all the various balls, all the various sticks that you have, and then ultimately then that rolls into um, like the, the boots, the recovery boots, right? And so that's just applying pressure in a, you know, and it kind of goes up and down your legs. And there's also ones that go into your hips. And have you guys even seen, I think they have some shoulder chest ones mm -hmm. They don't work quite as well, but, um, the whole idea is they're just applying pressure and, and then taking that pressure away. And, and that helps blood flow and your blood brings a bunch of nutrients in and helps you recover. I, I think, uh, there's, I guess I, I see a little bit of a distinction between like the, the massage aspect where I feel like it's almost like my, my muscles have um, contracted so much that they, they don't know to shut off and relax. So like stretching them and adding a little bit of like pin and stretch with some sort of like foam roller or ball can really help them to say, okay, like it's time to let go. And it's, it's more of like actually in the muscle and less just like the, the fascia and, and, um, so yeah, I, I find a little bit of difference between that and like the something where like legs up the wall or or boots where you're just working on like blood flow in order to help help smooth things out. I do think too oh, with, yeah. with massage. I mean, massage obviously is great if you if you can if you can afford it and it's something that you have access to where you can go, you know, regularly, whether it's once a month or bi-weekly, or even if you have the the means for weekly. Um, I think it's, it's huge in recovery, but I think there needs to be a pretty clear, um, understanding of what kind of massage works for you. So, you know, some athletes really need that, like deep, get into it. We're, you know, getting into the tendons and ligaments and got the elbow in there and it's really, really deep massage. And then there's going to be other athletes where just flushing the legs, you know, and just really flushing things out and loosening things up is going to be the way to go. And I think the deeper massage, I tend to lean towards that, that might be, you're trying to work on working out an injury or injury prevention, whereas the softer massage where you're flushing and saying like, I'm just going to flush things out, that's more aided in towards recovery. So the deeper massage can actually sometimes hurt you a little bit and beat you up. And you'll find like for two or three days afterwards, it, you're in quite a bit more stress or discomfort from that massage. However, it was helping you prevent an injury or rehab an injury or something like that. So big difference between recovery type massage and, Hey, we're really going to get into this area and try and break up the, you know, break up an injury or some, you know, potential injury because it's getting bound up, that kind of thing. So important to know that when you do these, what training sessions you have afterwards you know, and, and what you're going to be doing in the next 24 hours when you get these different types of massages. Yeah, I agree. And it definitely depends on, on the athlete and what kind of massage they get. Like I've, I've had massages on a Friday and I go to have a big weekend and I'm like, man, why am I, why am I flat? And, 
and some athletes can, can do that and bounce back and feel even better. So the type of massage and then how the athlete responds and, and yeah, I, I would, I would agree with you. I think that like massage or ART, something like that would be like the top rung, right? Going to someone where you can just lie there and try and totally relax and let them do the work. That's like the best of the best, but, um, but obviously like that takes a lot of time and, and energy and effort and, and money. And so like what you can do at home is in, in between those sessions even is also kind of like, I guess the other end of that coin. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then like the, the boots are expensive, but then once you have them, you can use them every darn day. And are they as good as getting a, a nice massage flush from a professional? No, not even close, but can you do them every day for like a one-time fixed cost? Like, yeah. So in that sense, pretty great. Cause you just can sit there and, you know, you can be working right. If, if you, if you work from home or something like that. Um, and so that's, that's really handy, but uh, in comparison to trust. And, and yeah, they, they do force you to sit down, right. At the very least, they force you to sit down and sit, sit still. And for a lot of, I guess triathletes, especially where it seemed to kind of busy go-getters bouncing around all the time being like, Oh, you need to sit down for 30 minutes with your legs out in front of you is, uh, is, is good on its own. Even if, even if the boots do very, very little to add to that. So do you guys do, um, Epsom salt baths or, or cold baths? Another thing where you're just sitting there sitting in a hot tub. I like we we haven't really talked about cold versus heat yet, but I'm a big fan of of heat personally, and I think warm baths, warm Epsom salt baths, anything like that really helps um, me personally. And then I've had good success with athletes that are that are using that as a way to even get ready to do like a, a stretching session or a foam rolling session. I think really like uh, it can help to. Uh, to get the body warmed up and ready, uh, ready to go for that. Yeah. I think, you know, the difference, the, the same thing, deciding these things, the more we can inform people of what, what it is that they're, they're after when they choose these things. So if you're really swollen and inflamed, you're probably going to lean more towards, you know, sitting in a cold river or an ice bath, that kind of thing. Or, you know, you see the plunges, the cold plunges, that kind of thing, because, you know, if you've got a, if you've, if you've got a lot of swelling or you've just got a lot of inflammation in general, that's going to help you know, cold, cold's going to help that. If you're really tight and really sore and, you know, need blood flow, that's going to be heat. So, and you can use a combination of back and forth as well, right? You might use heat before sessions, like you say, or stretching, or if someone needs to relax, um, you might use a, a cold dip right after a long, hard run to, to reduce inflammation. So timing of these things. So I think all of them are useful depending on the athlete and, but knowing why you're choosing something, you know, just not be like, oh, I never do cold baths. I, it's not something I do. It's like, well, if you're really inflamed and you're really swollen from a big run block or, or you know, a really hard, long run. I mean, I used to do my long, hard Ironman training run. And then the first thing I did was grab a recovery shake and, and then go sit in a river, the Boulder Creek path. And, and, you know, that really helped aid in recovery from those long runs. But then later on at night, I might sit in a hot Epsom salt bath. It's going to draw out, you know, the Epsom salt is going to help draw out a little bit of inflammation and you're going to relax and it's going to help you sleep a little bit better. And then you're going to loosen up the muscles and have a chance to stretch a little bit. So, you know, on the, on the flip side of that, if you're super inflamed, and you go and sit in a hot tub or a bath that might increase inflammation and you're not 
more recovered from it, you're actually just a little bit more flat and sore from it. So, um, you know, knowing what to choose and why and when that can be really helpful in, in your recovery as well. And I think the, the most important thing to remember on top of that is what is the temperature of the bath you're doing? What's the temperature of the, the cold water you're sitting in? So if you're using a bath or like a low temperature sauna to warm up, I think we've all seen the uh, octogenarian hop into a sauna just before they work out, right? But they're only there for five minutes. So they're literally warming up their muscles, but they're not getting hot. Um, and you have to make sure your internal body temperature is not getting too hot. There's, there's a negative aspect, or I shouldn't say there's a negative. There's a stress created on your body when, you, when you're in a sauna for too long or when you're in a bath too long. And that creates a heat stress. And if you're using that specifically for heat training, great. But if you're using it as a recovery modality, it's just not gonna, it's not actually helping you recover. It's putting a bigger stress on. So make sure that bath temperature is not too hot. It's a warm bath and make sure you're not in there too long. Um, and rehydrate afterwards. Correct. Yeah. And, and that's only if you're using it as, as like recovery, if you're using it for heat training, you you need to recover. Ugh. You need to rehydrate even more afterwards, but that temperature is going to be up really high and you would ne almost never want to do the heat training into a session, right? Then your your, the quality of your session is going to be garbage and the stress you're putting on your body is really high. So it would make a hell of a lot more sense to go do your session, follow it by some heat training. So do you guys often like recommend things like ice baths? And I guess I usually only recommend ice in like a specific area based on if an athlete has an injury or like inflammation due to some specific thing. I, I sh shy away from rep recommending ice baths anymore. I, I don't know where you guys lie with that. So before I quit grad school and exercise physiology, I spent a year uh, what I was going to do my graduate thesis on was ice, ice baths and uh, specifically use on recovery after running. Um, so I never did the study I created, but I did all the research. <laughs> and this is all 13 years. This is 2007 research, but I still keep like every time a paper comes out, I look through it just to see if, if anything new has really come out. And I remember just creating piles and stacks of paper of like, was it pro ice bath or was it anti ice bath? And for every single paper I found that said, yeah, ice baths maybe work. There was another paper that said ice baths don't work. Um, and what's quite clear to me as a coach, which has like, you're not looking at the science, you're looking at the specifics of the athlete is what Marilyn said. It does reduce inflammation. And sometimes you just feel way less terrible afterwards. Now, you know, physiologically, are you maybe better repaired? Science doesn't know the answer to that at this point, but psychologically, many athletes know that they feel better. And I don't care if your body is the same, if you're not hurting yourself, wouldn't you rather feel better? So in that sense, for those athletes, I would say, why wouldn't you use the ice bath? It, it makes perfect sense if you're going to feel better. Um, but just let it be known um, much like compression socks, the, the data is kind of just wishy-washy. It's not I, bad, but it's not good. One, one thing that might just be like interesting information for people and to, it, it takes, takes it away from, sometimes it, it's helpful to sort of take it away from us 
is with the show jumping horses, the big Grand Prix, you know, those horses are put under a massive amount of stress and recovery from day to day is, is really important. And what we would do is after a really big, hard class with a, with, a, with a horse is you take them right to the, to the racks and you cold hose their legs. We actually had these like things that you locked onto their legs and it was a running cold water and reduce inflammation right away in the legs. However, their back muscles, we would do heat packs. So we would do, you know, we would boil water, put like some kind of like, um, you know, absorbing junior or something in there and then, you know, hot towel and then put plastic over top of it and big heavy blankets. So it was like relaxing the muscles, but cold hosing the tendons and ligaments. And, and then we would bandage their legs up um, in like a, you know, a poultice or something like that. And if we, if you didn't do that, there's no way that they could come out of the stall and compete like that again, the next day, they would just be swollen. They'd be swollen in their legs and too sore in their back to do anything. But so I, I don't know, you know, translating that to humans, obviously, if you're, if you've got someone who's got really, really, this is like the heat and cold, hot and cold, you know, if you struggle with inflamed Achilles tendonitis, you know, all of those things that might be where you're applying cold and it might be better that it's cold running water versus just straight up ice on it. Um, if you've got someone who their back tightens up or, you know, their quads really tighten up and their IT bands, that might be a situation where you want to apply a lot of heat for recovery. So again, you know, you can use these, this information to, to apply it to your specific situation, what you're looking for in your recovery. I think the main takeaway from that is a lot of the science is up in the air on heat and cold stuff for recovery and human beings are animals just like horses. And like each one of us is going to react a little bit differently. So take your N of one, you're the only person that matters. And if you feel better, you know, with a little bit of heat or a little bit of cold, don't let somebody else tell you like, oh, well, this paper said X, Y, Z. Like I, I did the research and it was, it just was like, I remember at one point I had like 15 papers in each stack and there was nothing in the middle. Um, and so if it feels good to you, do it, you know, but, but also make sure when you start with the original heat and cold stuff, don't go super hot or don't go super cold. Just do like a little bit. And if it seems to work, then experiment with a little colder or a little hotter. And then you might find, oh, that was too warm or that was too cold. And that that's kind of the process you want to take um, figuring out what's going to work best for your recovery. Awesome. That was good. I, I also think the same is a, true to like whatever type of ball you might be looking at or like the massage gun. Like I have some athletes who swear by the massage gun. They use it like before every workout to like get their muscles ready or they, they hit a certain spot like right after a swim and they're like, yeah, this is this allows me to sit at my computer all day because my shoulders feel way better or like, you know, that it really works on their glutes or whatever it is. So even though like, say for me, the massage gun feels nice, but I don't think it adds a lot to, to my personal recovery, but I've seen athletes have that same thing where like it works well for them. So being willing to experiment, try trying different tools and not, not just saying, okay, like this is the one thing or not the one thing that may or may not work. What about talking about outside the box a little bit of things that are available out there, like, you know, the difference between acupuncture and dry needling and like all of the different, you know, there's some different um, things that people can start to get into if they're like, yeah, I get regular massage, I foam roll, I stretch, you know, I do all of these things. Um, I know what to choose in terms of hot and cold and those kinds of things. And they're looking for like 
they have the means and, and they have the access and they're looking for like that extra stuff. What do you, where are you guys at with all of, all of those things that are available? I mean, we've got a long list here. We've kind of, <laughs> Jesse made a list. There's like, I don't know if you want to read them off, Jesse, all the things that are like just making people aware. I mean, some people might not even be aware of some of the things on our list here. I mean, so on the list, we have massage, we have acupuncture, we have infrared sauna, physical therapy, ART, Graston, there's also Sastin, laser therapy, dry needling, polar ice machine, cryotherapy, uh, recovery boots. We talked about a few others that didn't even make the list, but that's that's a, a few things to get you going there. Inversion tables, some people- Inversion table, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Compression mm -hmm. socks. Mm-hmm. And- um, you were talking about with a strap earlier where you're um, I'm spacing on it. Where you're oh, distraction. Space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 There's um, if you know, there's a lot of good physical therapists out there that you can look up if you're a little bit more of an advanced athlete, knowing how to do like distraction for people who struggle with, you know, maybe some hip stuff Inversion is for, if you have a little bit of, you know, if you need some decompression of the spine um, you know, so there's, again, there's all of these different things available to us. Um, I think I, with all of these, it is important to know the difference between them. You know, people talk about acupuncture and in their mind, they might be thinking, you know, dry needling. There's a big difference between acupuncture and dry needling, you know, and so really make sure you're educated on this stuff. And the same thing with injury prevention or injury treatment. If you're talking about the difference between something like um, as advanced as PRP or stem cell treatment, very, very different treatments. I mean, that's a whole nother podcast as far as like treating injuries, but you know, as we go through this list, you know, I think it's good for us to each talk about what, what you, we, that's what's available, but our experience on educating people on what the difference is between them. You know, I think that's a important, important thing to do. I took a, I'm just, uh, oh, sorry, oh, go for it. I was going to say that I took an amazing nap once during an acupuncture session and I have not had the same results from dry needling. I do not fall asleep at all during dry needling. I, I tear up a bit. It's a serious well, business. The, the needle gauge is 10 times the size. So I felt it, that like, difference. Yeah. I mean, and so dry needling, I, I've had so many athletes who've had massive success with dry needling. And, and so obviously I've been in and out of Montana for the past, whatever, 20 years. Um, and in Montana, it's, it's legal to do, but like, um, a lot of the, the science is, well, I guess this is three or five years old information, but a lot of the science was like, oh, well, dry needling is not totally proven yet, but anecdotally, it seems amazing. And I've only ever had one person have a bad experience with dry needling and it was me and it was terrible. And I got my calf that is always strained um, dry needled and it got strained even more. And I ran out of gas in the middle of a blizzard on the busiest street in Missoula and had to push my car off with one leg. Anyways. Yeah, That's it was awful. terrible. Um, but, <laughs> and then I couldn't walk for like a month. Um, but as a result of the dry needling, so like dry needling can go wrong, but like, I've also had dry needling personally go right 40 times where I was like left. And I was like, you know, the 40 times it worked was worth the one time that it didn't work. Um, if you were a professional athlete and it went wrong that one time, I think you would never forget it and probably never try it again. Um, and yeah. Oh, Jesse, do you want to tell a story about that? <laughs> um, I don't, I, I guess I don't need to get into a long story about that, but I would just say that I think like anything else there, like, like we're talking about massage, there's a varying degrees of like, 
skill level with massage therapists and experience they have working with athletes and how hard they're pushing when they're giving you a massage and kind of having that intuitive sense as far as like, you know, I, I would say a deep, a really deep massage is as close as you can come to dry needling, right? The needle is just getting a little further in there and kind of stimulating that muscle on a different level. Um, but I'd say the same thing with a physical therapist who is using dry needles is it depends on their, their experience and the people which they've performed dry needling on that can really change how, how good they are and like how, um, how it affects you personally. And like we were, you were talking about with like the cold and the hot, like you kind of want someone who, or getting into dry needling, maybe like, Oh, this is my first time. So, you know, triathletes tend to go all in and be like, Oh yeah, give me all, all the dry needles. I can't feel it. So give me more. And I feel like you kind of want to say, okay, like, let's go easy. It's my first time. I have kind of a sensitive calf. So you don't want to go crazy and really approach it with a sense of caution with all these recovery modalities, because it is, you know, the, the person who's doing the applying can't feel what you feel. So being willing to kind of express that and, and telling them to say when uh, Marilyn is going to add to that though. Yeah. I guess uh, the main thing I wanted to make sure that we talked about as well, what, uh, uh, you know, is that the difference between acupuncture and dry needling. So acupuncture works on a, you know, obviously on an energy system and, and lines and, you know, that's the needles, it's a different, the purpose and the goal of getting acupuncture is completely different and people can you know look that up and and what that's all about with dry needling it's much more of a treatment typically treatment of injury because they're taking a needle and going in it's like blood flow right so if you've got if you've got a white fibrous tendon like an achilles or a hamstring or something like that that one of the things that limits it from healing and 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 slows the healing process down is that it, there's not a lot of blood flow. So all of these things we're trying to increase blood flow. And what dry needling does is they actually take a needle and then they're stimulating that area and you know the sending the brain and the body to say, send some blood flow here. And they might even, I've had dry needling as, um, as aggressive as going in to see a physician where they do it under ultrasound with an actual needle and prick that tendon and create a little bit of bleeding that then forms a scab on, on that and creates a healing process there. So that's obviously the very extreme end, typically with physical therapists or with dry needling, they're actually going into the area and creating a little bit of almost what what they might describe to you as, Hey, we're going to kind of like a little re injure this area to stimulate the brain and the muscle and the, and the blood flow to that area to, to encourage healing. So it's the same as if you, you know, ultrasound laser, those types of things, you're trying to increase blood flow to a white fibrous area that might not naturally do that, or as maybe even shut down the process of healing that area at all. So really, really different than acupuncture, right? If you're choosing acupuncture for a recovery, it's going to be a little bit more, maybe it might be on your nervous system. Um, you know, it's going to, it's not going to really have much to do with uh, healing and injury in terms of, you know, tendon, ligament, muscle, that kind of thing. So again, really, really different. Are you going in because, Hey, I have a Achilles tendon issue or, you know, a shoulder issue or something where I need increased blood flow and I need help healing this injury, or am I going because I need to relax and work on the energy systems and, and recover from a nervous system standpoint of view? Um, maybe even some people might say immune system, that kind of thing. So I think when we tell these stories and we talk about it again, why you're choosing which one becomes important. So if you say, oh, I went for acupuncture and you're thinking you, you're like, oh, that doesn't work. But what did you actually go for? I think, you know, were you looking for dry needling, but went to acupuncture 
or if you'd be in for a heck of a surprise if you thought you were going in for acupuncture and you got dry needling. <laughs> You're like, wow, that was not what I expected. So I think you know that's important stuff to talk about. Do we want to go through and, and mention, like I realized we never brought up cupping and I'm assuming maybe I'm wrong. It's because none of us has seen any research that says cupping works very well. Um, and like, we've all had a few athletes who've had cryotherapy, but like at the same time, like nobody's seen a bunch of research that says it does too much other than um, makes people feel good. M much like a cold bath, just, you know, cryotherapy is super expensive and everybody can put some ice cubes in a tub. Um, and is there anything else that, that we left out? No, I mean, I think there's, I mean, there's all kinds of treatment for injury, like shockwave therapy, you know, cupping is, um, you know, another, uh, another thing that it's like the, the goal of it, like ultrasound, all of these things, laser, it's it increased blood flow, right? Um, in, increased blood flow to an area. So again, you're asking yourself, am I trying to heal an injury and recover from something like that? Or am I just trying to recover from a muscle yeah, soreness standpoint of view? Am I... Um, am I trying to recover my nervous system? Am I trying to, you know, all of these kinds of things. So I think, you know, like we mentioned, Graston, ART, those are going to be much more specific to tendon and ligament, not so much, oh, I'm just sore and I need to, you know, recover for my session the next day. So if you go for an ART session, you're probably looking for, hey, I've got like something really tight that is bothering me and I'm worried about it turning into an injury, which is different than, hey, I need my legs flushed out because I've done a million hours of training and I'm really sore and I have got a lot of muscle soreness. So all of these things, it's, you know, they all serve a purpose based on what it is that your needs are and what you're looking for at the time. And, and I will say if, if you are like, you know, you have disposal income and you're looking for one of these that you might be able to use on a regular basis. I think any of these things can, can be helpful. Like I've had athletes that have gotten ART once a week and they wouldn't say, Oh, I go in and this hurts. They'd go in and, and they'd see the same provider. And, and so that provider would know how they usually move and what their range of motion was. And they could say, okay, like, even though you feel good, you're kind of tight in this area and they could kind of work it out a little bit. And they would know that like, this is a, a weekly check-in thing and not like, a, oh, I want to try and get in there and really fix this. It's like, I want to make you work pretty well for the rest of this week and then see you again and, and keep you on track. So I, I think that any of these things can help with that. And it kind of depends on how you respond and even the provider you find and how you interact with them. And if you work well with them, I've personally found like I, I've got a massage therapist that started to know me really well. And so that worked great for me. And like, I mean, Amy, my wife got ART regularly. And I know other people that have just found a physical therapist that go to once a week for that same kind of thing. Like they can check in and see how they move and work with them a little bit. And, and again, same thing with any of these other tools if you find find what works well for you then and and like marilyn said knowing exactly why you're going and making sure you kind of have that conversation with with the provider that they can all work well based on i guess your situation yeah i like finding a good massage therapist is invaluable right like it it really makes a difference and if that's something that you can have once a week or every other week or once a month like that goes a really long way with finding someone that you're able to communicate with. And it's very much in, in the same line of finding a coach, right? Um, obviously they just see you once and they don't control everything else you're doing, but a good massage therapist is going to be able to tell you like, 
oh yeah, there's, there's some issue with this muscle here. Um, it seems relatively healthy, but if you push it too hard, it's, you're probably going to end up injured. And, and other massage therapists, if you're, if you're recovering from an injury, they can kind of give you like a weekly update. Like this is how sticky it is. This is, this is what this feels like. Um, and maybe this is a way you could, you probably should, or should not progress your training, even though they're not a coach, they can give you that background information. And then you and your coach or, or you by yourself can make those decisions. And I guess the other thing I would add to that is as my life has changed now with a small human running around my house, the ability for me to leave for two hours at a time to go get a massage has really diminished. And so I've switched and relied more on self-care and, and again, I've like, now I have a greater arsenal of self-care tools. I've got a variety of sizes and uh, densities of balls that I use and a foam roller and, um, and I, you know, I've, I've forced myself to be a little more diligent with what I'm doing on my own. And I, I, yes. Uh, so, and I found that to be, you know, it's, it's kept me healthy. Maybe it's not equally as effective. Maybe I don't feel as great as if I'd gotten a massage and it is another stress because I need to do the work on myself, but I have found that I, if I force myself to do it, it can be an effective way to help keep myself mobile. Yeah. If somebody's really diligent and, and has the appropriate tools at home, you, you really, and you really can keep yourself in pretty darn good shape. There's always going to be a handful of things that you just really can't do on your own. You know, like upper back stuff is super hard. You, you can try and there's a couple of tools, right? Like the, the hook tool to dig into your, your traps and your rhomboids and your scapula, but it's always easier to have the pros do it. Right. Um, but you can take pretty darn good care of yourself on your own. I think probably the key things that we want to, you know, focus on is that if you're, con if you're consistent, you know, find what works for you, you're consistent with it in terms of like preventative and recovery. And then knowing what you're choosing in terms of like, are you trying to heal an injury or are you just looking for some kind of recovery on a, on a day-to-day -day basis, like you've mentioned to me, Jesse, before, <clears throat> you know, if you're, you're consistent every single day, a little bit, 15 minutes every day with that stuff, then, then you're good and it keeps going. So I think, um, you know, if, if you know what works, you're consistent, um, you know what it is that you're after, the more educated you are on what's available to you, then, you know, you, you do a pretty good job balancing all this with your training. So it doesn't need to become a part-time job and it can become overwhelming with what's out there. And I think if you just sort of educate yourself and then narrow it down and be consistent with it. You're going to, you're going to be pretty well set up. And just to repeat something you said earlier, like knowing the why, right. Knowing why you're choosing where you're choosing, it, it really kind of helps, helps everything. Elliot, you, you made it sound like you really wanted to talk about compression socks. So, well, we just didn't talk about them really in full. And so the, people race with compression socks and, and people for recovery purposes, you know, the research shows that they're great for blood flow. If you're sitting at the office, um, you know, for years I was wearing compression socks to work, right. Or, or just working at home and, Oh, Jesse's going to sneeze. He held it off. And so, so compression socks as a recovery tool, I think are great. And compression socks when traveling are darn near mandatory. Um, 
if you're lucky, maybe your feet don't swell up. But the, the same thing, if, if you can get compression pat, pants when you're traveling, great. If you can wear compression pants when you're sitting at work, great. Um, and even if you're standing on your feet all day, also compression is still going to help even if you're standing on your feet, um, you know, if you're a cashier or something like that. So I think compression socks as a re recovery tool are great. Compression socks as a race tool, essentially it's just placebo. But if, if, if you believe in it and you feel better, it's literally been proven. If you think your compression socks work when you, when you race, they work. They give you a 1% efficiency, aerobic efficiency benefit. If you don't think they work or you don't know, they don't do anything. They don't take away though. So if, if you have some fancy compression socks that maybe like shield the sun from you, then you might as well use them, right? Even if you're not sure. Um, if you're doing an Olympic and you have to stop and put on your compression socks and you're going to lose the race because you spent a minute putting on your socks, well, guess what? You're probably better off not using them. Um, but everyone kind of has that same thing. So don't use the compression. Like if you think it's going to make you feel better, just use them and like, don't listen to anybody else because the science literally says if they make you feel better, they're going to work. And if they don't make you feel better, no need to use them. Awesome. Ooh, yeah. We got Frankie. <laughs> um, the only thing I would add to that is be careful using the recovery calf sleeves for recovery, because I think they can actually cause an adverse effect if they are keeping blood in your feet because they don't yeah. go all the way down. So I've seen people sure. flying with the calf sleeves and I'm like, I don't know if that's doing what you think it's doing. Yeah. It has to be that it's returning blood to the heart. Right. I mean, if it's the whole idea of that is that's why they use them in hospital beds and stuff like that. If the blood is pooling, you know, normally when we get up and walk around the body functions, it pumps it from his heart down out to the extremities and then from the extremities back up to the heart. So the whole idea of the, you know, the compression boots, all that kind of stuff is that that's the same reason massage therapists are taught to massage from, you know, from the extremity towards the heart, that kind of thing. So when you're looking at flying with compression and those types of things or sitting for long periods of time at your desk, think about it as you don't want everything, all the swelling and blood to pool, sit and pool at the bottom. You want something that's going to press it back up to your heart and your heart pumps it back down. And that's what's creating the recovery. So that's, um, you're exactly right, Jesse. I mean, if you're just wearing calf sleeves, that's like support for that muscle, which is very different than increased blood flow based on being stagnant and just sitting for extended periods of time. Awesome. I think we rolled through our, at least most things on our list for, uh, for recovery tools. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's good. There's so much available out there. I think, you know, there's no reason to not not be recovered. I mean, there's the, we've given you options if, if you're not financially have a lot of means or you don't want to be interacting with people and lots of options. If it, you know, if you've got the, the world at your fingertips, there's, you know, endless things that you can do out there for sure. Yeah. Just like your training, stay consistent in your recovery so you can train more. Works for me. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you guys. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks guys. Super fun conversation. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll talk to you guys again soon. Cheers. All right. Bye.